0: Will you please stand for the reading of the word? We're in Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's perfect will, is, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, And these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully.
1: Well, this is, uh, in many ways, a very special day for me. Uh, today I turn three-quarters of a century old. Uh, I woke up this morning, and I thought, my goodness, I'm 75, and uh, I thought, well, it's really no big deal. It's sort of like watching 100,000 roll up on your odometer. (laughs) Uh, You uh, wait for it, and it gets here, and uh, it's nothing, you know, all you have to do is live long enough, that's all. Uh, (laughs) Yogi Berra uh, once said of Goose Goslin, the the baseball pitcher, Goose, is uh, 25 today. Uh, if he lives 10 years, he has a chance to be 35. And uh, if I live 10, I guess I have a chance to, uh, to be 85. Uh, last night, Carolyn and I were watching the Louisville-UNC game, and I got a phone call from uh, our number two son, uh, Brian. And he said, uh, gee, I'd really like to be watching the game with you. And I thought, boy, I would, I would too. And just about that time, the phone rang. Uh, and Brian, who lives in Washington, was standing on my front step. <laughs> and Carolyn had brought him over for the day. So for the first time in a long time, our whole family is together. So that's what makes it so uh, special for me. Um, let's turn to our text this morning, Romans 12, 1 through 8. Just a few introductory comments. Uh, ancient... Uh, Philosophers tell us there are four questions to ask of anything. That is, questions to ask if we really want to understand something. What is it made of? That is, what are its component parts? What has it been made into? What is the product into which it's been made? What has it been made by? And and that is, what is its source? What is its producer? And fourth, what has it been made for? What is its purpose, its goal, or its end? Of the four questions, the fourth is by far the most important because it's the reason for all the other reasons. And without an understanding of that fourth question, we are likely to misuse the thing, whatever it is, and break it or ruin it. Uh, let me give you an example of how that uh, that works. A friend of mine had a first grader that he wanted to put into an upscale private school. This was down in the Bay Area in California, and he went to an orientation uh, an orientation meeting with the headmaster of the school, who was explaining the the school curriculum and the different blocks of of time through the day. Uh, this first hour, he said, the reason for this first hour. Uh, is to develop uh, social skills. The reason for the second hour, or the purpose for the second hour, is to uh, to develop cognitive skills, to learn how to think rationally, and so forth through the day. Spelling out the purpose for each hour of the day. And my friend, who is uh, is himself something of a philosopher, raised his hand, and he said, sir, may I ask a question? He said, what is the purpose for all of these purposes? And the headmaster had no answer for that question. And uh, therefore he decided since there was no purpose for the educative process, that was not a place that he wanted to put his son. Very wise move. Now, let me give you some examples of how these questions work. Let's take an example that all Idahoans can relate to, men and women, and that is uh, a fly rod, as <laughs> just saw George light up over here, <coughs> got his attention. Uh, a fly rod, what, what is it made of? Well, um, these days it's a composite of some sort, graphite, boron, or some other, uh, some other uh, uh, material. A little bit of metal, some cork. But basically those are the, uh, those are the elements that make up a uh, fly rod. What has it been made into? Well, a fly rod of various sorts, a nine-foot-six uh, weight or five-weight or uh, seven-and-a-half-foot-three-weight, depending on the type of fishing that you're doing. What was it made by? Well, various manufacturers, uh, Winston, Orvis, Sage, some artisan in one of these, one of these plants put this uh, thing together. What is it made for? Well, uh, to catch fish. It has a very specific purpose to fish with. It's not used to play baseball or uh, to shoot pool or to play golf. It has one purpose, and that is uh, to fish. I had a friend who learned the hard way what a fly rod is not meant for. He was attacked by a very angry beaver and broke the thing all to pieces over the beaver's head without... uh, Having making any difference at all on the beaver, all he did was break his fly rod all to pieces. Because he was using it for the purpose for which it was, not, it was not intended. Now keep that in mind. When we use something for the wrong purpose, we're inclined to ruin it. Now let's take another example, your body. What is it made of? Well, a uh, little bit of dust and a whole lot of water. Uh, I used to say to the men on Wednesday morning, just a reminder for all of us when we got too big for our britches, that if you were to extract all the water from us, you would be left with a with a little ball of uh, desiccated dirt about the size of a marble and not worth uh, much more. That's what we are. Our bodies are made of dust. What has it been made into? Well, Adrienne, uh, George, Sam, Charlie, Mary, Elizabeth, all of us that are seated in this in this room. Now, you are not your body. You have a body. Scripture is very clear about that. You are a living soul. That's your essence, but you do have a body. It's the means by which we uh, identify you. What was it made by? Well, your parents, of course, in in most cases, but ultimately by God. The psalmist says in Psalm 100, it is he, God, who has made us, and not we ourselves. Uh, David, in one of his psalms, psalms, Psalm 139, has an interesting take on this whole process. He pictures God thinking us up when we were still in our mother's womb. He, well, actually, before we were, we were in our mother's womb, he thought about us. He planned us, what our body would be like. And David uses a very colorful metaphor. Of course, it's, it's, it's an image. It's not something to be taken literally. But he says it's as though God had a book in which all of our members were written as he thought about us and determined what we should be, what we would look like, our the shape of our body, our size, how tall we are, all of the elements of, of our uh, of what we are physically, he wrote it down in a book. And it's almost like an instruction manual. And when he began to construct us in our mother's womb, he followed that manual. You know, the knee bone connects to the shin bone and the shin bone to the ankle bone and so forth. He put us all together. It's not literal. It's poetic imagery. But it gives us an idea uh, that God is at work. His process is at work, conceiving us, thinking about us, and then putting us together to be the kind of people uh, that, we, that we are. Now, what is our body made for? What is your body made for? They are made to be filled and to be flooded with God. That's its ultimate purpose. To possess God and to be possessed by Him. Uh, Paul put it uh, another way. He said, God is for our body and our bodies are for God. It's a remarkable statement. Uh, In the, the world in which Paul lived, in his culture, the body was not a good thing. It was a nuisance. The body was the prison house of the soul. They inherited that idea from the Greeks. And the idea was to try to get rid of the body as much as possible so that pure reason could reign. The mind was what mattered in the soul, but uh, not the body but But God says, no, God made your body. God loves your body just the way it is. You were made for Him and and He made your body and your body is made for Him. And that brings us to Paul's punchline, which is really the central statement of this entire chapter and the one that I want us to to go from this place remembering and hopefully never forgetting. Present your body, Paul says, as a living sacrifice to God. Now, you know, uh, in the ancient world, this is true outside of Israel as well as within Israel, a worshiper would bring an animal of some sort, and the type of animal and the quality of the animal was carefully uh, prescribed. prescribed. Uh, you couldn't bring a camel or a donkey or a giraffe for a sacrifice. It was a lamb or a bullock or a pigeon or, or something of that, of that nature. It was something that was, quote, wholly unacceptable. Those are Old Testament terms. Now Paul says, God does not any longer want you to bring in an animal as a sacrifice. That's not acceptable worship. What he wants is your body. My body. To bring our bodies to him, that he says is a holy and pleasing sacrifice. That is a sweet aroma in God's nostrils. He he longs for that. He wants that more than, than anything else. But you ask, Why in the world would God want my body? (laughs) It has a dirty mind. It's lazy and indulgent, self-indulgent. It's been abused by drugs and alcohol. Uh, It has a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, It's old. It's wrinkled. It's too short. It's too tall. It's overweight. It doesn't look like the ads in the glamour magazines. Why in the world would God want, want, want my body? Paul says, no matter, yield it to him. Just give it to him and let him do with it as he sees fit. You see, most of us really have no idea what to do with our bodies. We either treasure them or we trash them. We misuse them in various ways and we ruin them. Only God, who made our bodies and knows what they're for, knows how to put them to his intended purpose. So it's all very simple. See, Christian faith is not complex. The problem is we're too complex. It's really very simple. Paul says, do what, what, you want to know what to do with your body? Bring it to God. Let him put it to his intended purpose. He knows what it's for. Now, um, how does God put our, bodies to it, its intended pur- our body to its intended purpose? Paul tells us in verse 2, Do not be conformed to the world Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, that's an odd thing to say in the context of our bodies. What does the mind have to do with our body? Well, it's important that we understand how the mind functions because the body functions as a result of the activity of the mind. The body doesn't act randomly. It doesn't just move without... Without purpose. It's the mind that directs the body. And so that's why it's important that our minds become renewed. And he uses two verbs to describe that process. Don't be conformed, he says, to the world, but be transformed. He's talking about the mind. Don't let the mind be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Now, both verbs. Are present tense verbs, so they describe a process, an ongoing process. And they're both passive. They describe an activity that's being done to us. We are either being conformed to the world or we are being transformed by another process. So, Paul starts with a negative. Don't be conformed to the world. Or, uh, I've always liked J.B. Phillips' translation of that phrase. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now, what is the world? Well, when I was a young man, uh, I was for a while in a, a what you would call today a very fundamentalist church, and uh, we were taught that certain things are of the world. Smoking, drinking, going to movies, dancing, uh, chewing tobacco, and going with girls that do. <laughs> I never could figure out whether... That had to do with all of those proscriptions or just one, and since most of the girls I knew didn't chew tobacco, I figured the field was open uh, or mixed bathing, and it took me years to figure out what I was not supposed to be mixed with. And I, I discovered it was girls later on. Uh, but anyway, you know, those were the filthy five or the dirty half dozen, the things that, that defined... Worldliness, But I began to see some troublesome things about that list of rules. The first is that I saw people who didn't do one or all of those things, but who lived bigoted, racist, unforgiving, resentful lives. People I really did not want to be like. Secondly, I saw people who did some or all of those things who, were, who greatly loved God, and love people, and I couldn't put all that together. I began to realize that the whole thing is a cultural phenomenon, that most of those extra-biblical proscriptions really have to do with a region of the country we come from, or a particular religious group that we're involved with, and they didn't have anything to do with anything. Uh, and a number of years ago, a friend of mine told a, a story that has always stuck in my mind. It was about a group of German pastors that came over here to the United States to look at, at American churches. And uh, they went from place to place viewing different congregations. And over the period of time they were here, they became greatly concerned about the worldliness of American churches because of our uh, our materialism, our tendency to build houses that are way too big and dress much too opulently and You know, it really bothered them, and they went back to Germany, and they gathered the Christians in the churches there, and they began to pray for the Americans who were so worldly, and as they prayed, they began to weep, and they wept, and they wept, and the tears ran down their face, and off the end of their cigars and into their beer. (laughs) Well, the story stuck with me because it it does show us that worldliness is something different from a list of four or five things that we do or don't do. It's much bigger than a few forbidden activities. The world is our culture that we live in that is forever squeezing us into its mold. It's the world that tells us that everything is about me. See, we, we, we live today in what is called the me culture, and we talk about it as though it's something to be proud of, but it's something we ought to be ashamed of because it's, it's what has caused everything that's wrong with us and everything that's wrong with our, with our world. Just check out the magazines at the checkout stands as you're waiting to pay for your groceries. It's all about self. It's all about our bodies. It's all about looking more beautiful. It's all about me. Nothing about the soul and nothing about caring for others. Um, so what's the solution? Well, Paul says we need to be transformed. Don't be conformed to the world. See, the world is selfish It's centered on self. That's the essence of self, uh, the essence of worldliness. It's the sin of the devil. It's thinking about ourselves. Something needs to take place that will transform our, our thinking. Paul says we need to be transformed. That's the positive side. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Now, this uh, verb transformed, uh, the Greek word that stands behind it, is the word from which we get our word metaf- metamorphosis. And, and what you think of uh, immediately when you think of metamorphosis is that wonderful magical process by which a, a, a little grubby brown caterpillar becomes a beautiful uh, butterfly. Did any of you see the, uh, the exhibit at the Boise Zoo of the butterflies? Staggering. I, I just I love that exhibit. I, you know, beautiful, translucent, colorful wings on those, on those butterflies, some of the most, most beautiful creatures on the face of, of the earth. See, I think God actually created that whole process and built it right into to our, uh, to our world so we would have a picture of this process of transformation. See, uh, when I was a little boy, uh, the only thing I thought about was that caterpillars were great to drop down the back of little girls' uh, blouses. (laughs) But no, that that caterpillar is a picture of the process by which God takes an, an ugly grub and turns it into a beautiful, beautiful creature. It's metamorphosis. It's magic. Now, what is the metamorphosis? It's a renewal of our minds. You see the text? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your... It's a mental process. It's something that takes place in our our thoughts. It's a change in our thinking. What is it? We begin to think the way God thinks. You see, the process doesn't result in a more beautiful body. It results in a more beautiful mind. We begin to develop what Paul calls in another place the mind of Christ, we move away from our preoccupation with ourselves into a concern for the people around us. See? Now, as I said, our bodies don't merely act randomly. They are the result of our thoughts. As a man, Jesus said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's what he becomes. That's the way he behaves. And so if our bodies are going to be put to God's intended purpose, then our minds have to be changed. They have to be transformed. We have to uh, get our minds right. That's what Paul is is saying. Uh, going back to the ancient philosophers, Plato had a, a very helpful um, uh, image. He said that our body uses the image of a chariot. Our bodies are like chariots. And the horses that draw the chariot or our feelings, our emotions, our passions. And the charioteer is our mind. And what Plato meant by that is that the mind has to be governed by wisdom and by virtue, by prudence, as he put it. That We know the right things to do and we choose to do them. And and the charioteer has to control the feelings and the passions that drive our bodies. Passions are a good thing because they're the motivative agent in our bodies, but they have to be controlled. We can't live on the basis of feeling and emotion. We have to live on the basis of mind. Now, Plato fell short because understand, he didn't understand that we can actually know the mind of God. That's something he was agnostic uh, about. But we can know his mind, and we can think his thoughts after him, and our body follows suit. That's what Paul is saying. Now, how do we transform our minds? Transformation occurs as we read God's Word and pray over it. The simple process of taking the Word day by day and, and reading a few verses and thinking about them and praying over them and asking God to translate that truth into, into us so that what comes into our head becomes a part of our, of our heart. It happens as we attend a, a Bible study or a growth group and hear the Word taught or we attend a worship service, or as we, we read the right books, we read books by wise women and wise men, as we rub shoulders with with other Christians. The truth begins to seep into the nooks and crannies of our of our thinking, and unconsciously we begin to take on God's way of thinking about things. Uh, there's an oak tree right across the fence in our backyard in the park, and I've watched it this year. All through the winter it kept its leaves. It's what oak trees do and I noticed the other day they were beginning to fall and uh, while I was walking the dog I broke off a branch and looked at it. Sure enough there's a little green shoot right at the base of the stem of the leaf. It's it's pushing off that, that leaf. That's what the process is like. It's it, it's like the magical process that changes a grub into a butterfly. As we begin to read the word, it begins to push off the old ways of thinking and and introduce new thoughts. Things that we've never thought of before and, and unconsciously, we begin to take on the mind of Christ. As I said, the verb is present, so it's an ongoing process and it's passive. It's God acting upon us. And when that process is at work, Paul says, we begin to take on God's thoughts or put another way to use Paul's terms here in this verse, we come to know God's will. Remember how he puts it? That we may know Is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now understand this. God's will is not an itinerary. Rarely in the Bible is God's will translated into the the decisions that we have to make about where we shall live, what house we buy, what clothes we wear, those sorts of things. God's will has to do with character and virtue, with the fruit of the Spirit. Uh things specified in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, things you read in James about the wisdom that's from above. The wisdom from above, James says, is pure and peaceable and gentle and full of mercy. It's being gentle, tranquil, strong. It's what we think of as character or virtue. Um, It's the fruit of the Spirit, love joy, peace, it's goodness. See? Now, what what follows in Romans is what that looks like. The, Paul immediately turns to the idea of gifts, and, and I'm not going to talk about gifts this morning. I'm going to let uh, Jackson and, and Rod do that. and They're going to teach you the rest of the book. But the last three chapters of the book of Romans, are really a description of what a transformed mind looks like. See, instead of using its giftedness to do things for yourself, to aggrandize yourself, use them for others. Now, you know, there are a lot of uh, mechanical means these days to discovering your gifts. I find that you don't need those sorts of things. That As you begin to give yourself to others, as you see a need and meet it, as you act in love toward those that that are helpless those that need help in some in some way you begin to find your niche your niche in 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 the body of Christ i remember when our boys were growing up watching them learn how to use their hands and their feet they didn't look at their hands and say now let's see what is this thing for i think that's to grasp and that's what i'm going to you know no they just started experimenting using their members in various ways and they and they discovered what those members were for. That's how we, our giftedness comes about. We begin to serve others. We begin to care about others. We begin to love them. We begin to think about them as a result of this transformation instead of ourselves. And and, and we find our place in the body of Christ. Now, uh, you say, yes, but I'm, I'm, I'm too old to use some of my gifts. I can't travel overseas. I, you know, I can't do some of the things that... I used to be able to do, but you can smile at people and you can pray for people and you can love the people in your immediate circle, see? He's talking about these small things which in the end turn out to be very big things. They're, it's just using our bodies to make visible the invisible Christ who indwells us. And where does that come from? From a transformed mind. It's just not self-effort. It's not trying harder. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's letting the Spirit of God transform your mind into the mind of Christ as you spend time in the Word and as you spend time with God's people. Now, when we begin to follow Christ in obedience, what do we discover? That God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, what does He mean? Well, virtue makes you happy. That's something that wise men have known for hundreds of years. That's the principle behind the Beatitudes. Happy is the, the person who is meek. Happy is the person who is merciful. Happy is the person who is peaceful. Righteousness makes you happy. Virtue is pleasing. Vice makes you unhappy. That's why when people do really terrible things to you, evil things uh, you know, that hurt you terribly you need to remember they cannot really hurt me at all because they cannot touch my soul and they cannot make me do the wrong thing. I should rather feel sorry for them because the evil that they're doing to me is making them unhappy. Now that's what Paul means when he says you begin to enact God's will, you begin to do it and you'll find that it's good and it's pleasing, that is, it satisfies And it is perfect, uses the word for an end process. In other words, it is the end which we seek, which is happiness. As Mammy Yoakum said, uh, used to say, goodness is better than badness because it's nicer, but it's also more happifying. It is the hiding place, someone has said, of the joy and the tranquility that we seek. Dante wrote perhaps the most famous line from that great poet, in God's will is our peace. You want to be happy? (laughs) Do God's will. And where does that come from? From a transformed mind. Now, the final question and the most important of all, why? Why? Why give our bodies to God? Because God loves you. You see how Paul argues? Therefore, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That therefore, that little conjunction, may be the most important word in the whole Bible, because it's the motivation for doing everything that we do. Therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why? Because of God's mercy. Now, let me tell you about that word, mercy. It's a rich, pregnant uh, word. It. When we th- Our English word, mercy... Uh, when we use it, we think of someone who is helpless and someone who needs uh, to be shown compassion because of their helpless state. That's the word that's used. Let me back up a little bit. As many of you know, the Old Testament was translated early on, about 200 years before Christ, into Greek. And that was the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used. That's why sometimes our quotations in the New Testament don't quite mesh Well, what we find in the Old Testament, because the apostles and Jesus were quoting their version, just as our version might be the NIV or the King James or whatever, they were quoting their version, which was the Septuagint, it was called, the Greek translation of the New Testament. Now, the word mercy, the the word is translated mercy here in this text in Romans, is the word mercy. That is translated. That is used to translate the word "kessed" in the Old Testament, which is one of the richest terms in the whole Old Testament. It basically means loving kindness. It's the word that's used in Psalm uh, 23. Uh, goodness and mercy, loving kindness, shall follow us all the days of our lives. It's used of a, a marriage contract in which someone agrees to be loyal, no matter no matter what. It's the, it's the richest, most profound term for love in the Old Testament. And I believe, because Paul had that idea in the back of his mind, that's what he was thinking when he used this word mercy here. Present your bodies. Why? Because God loves you. Like you wouldn't believe. The therefore takes us back in, in, into the opening chapters of Romans. As you know, the first three chapters deal with our awfulness. See, our wickedness, our evil, What's everything is wrong with us, our self-centeredness. And, and in 323, Paul comes to his, his conclusion, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we're all helpless. But then he goes on, being justified freely by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the next two and a half chapters spell out, The wonderful salvation that he has provided, that he planned for from the very moment of the fall of the human race goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and God's gracious provision to save us, to love us, no matter what. So the next two and a half chapters have to do with salvation. The next three chapters have to do with our sanctification. That is the process by which God turns us into the kind of people that we idealize. We all have some idea of the kind of person we'd like to be. And those chapters deal with that issue. And then you have three chapters that deal with God's sovereignty and His providence and the fact that He has a plan to gather the whole world into His arms and and it's there to show us that salvation is is bigger than just us. It has to do with the whole universe and everything that God has in mind for for that universe. Therefore, therefore, because of the mercy of God, because of all that He's done, Present yourself to him it's the only reasonable thing to do that's the word to use it it's logical again. the word goes all the way back to the old philosophers to plato aristotle all 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 those wise people who are so far ahead of their time it's the only logical thing to do, given the fact that God loves you. Uh, Isaac Watts perhaps captures that thought uh, Better than anyone in his hymn when I survey the wonders cross. The last line of which reads, Were the whole realm of nature of mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Lord, our thoughts go back to those few words with which you offered your body to do your Father's will. And we... Echo them. Not my will, but yours be done. Take our bodies. Do with them as you see fit. Take our minds. Renew them by your word. Give us your thoughts. May we think your thoughts after you. And become, as your Spirit works upon us, the kind of people that we long to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to turn to the Lord's table. Uh, Very appropriate that we do so, given this passage. Um, And as the men are coming, and uh, let's go ahead and distribute the elements. I want to say a few more words. Um, David wrote a psalm, Psalm 46, in which he said a very curious thing. At least it was curious to me the first time I read it. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but your ear, my ears, you have pierced. Such an odd thing coming from a Jew. Uh, Sacrifice and offering you don't desire. And the whole law, the cult, the, the worship system of Israel laid out an elaborate system of sacrifice. Um, and yet, David says, "That's not what you desire. That wasn't your ultimate intention when you when you gave us those those laws." My ear you have pierced, and it seemed like a non sequitur. It just doesn't follow. What does piercing of the ear have to do with anything? Well, it goes back to a, a custom in Israel which became a law. Had to do with uh, with slavery in Israel. Slavery in Israel was really, really very compassionate. Uh, there were times that um, uh, an Israelite might get himself in trouble financially, he might owe a huge debt that he couldn't pay. And so he would, he would come to, the per, to his debtor, and he would offer to be indentured for a period of time. Actually, that's what slavery was in Israel. It was more indentured servitude than the, the sort of slavery we normally associate with that term. And he would say, I I want to work for you for a period of time. And that period of time was specified. It was seven years. At the end of seven years, the, the servant could go free. But there were times that the servant came to love his master because his master was so compassionate and so kind. And it was so much better than anything he could find on his own, and so he would go to the master, and and, and these are actually the words of scripture. I love my master, and I want to serve you forever. And so the master would take him to the doorpost of the house, and take an awl and punch a hole in his earlobe. Painful process, but I suppose leave a little peg or an earring there as a symbol. And that person would serve willingly for the rest of his life. Now it's that. Policy, that custom that David is referring to here. It's not animal sacrifice that God wants. He wants a willing servant, a body made available to him to do as he pleases, God pleases. The writer of Hebrews uh, picks up that prayer and applies it to Jesus in Hebrews 10. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a Body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O Lord. So again, that's the issue. Doing the will of God and making one's body available to God for His purposes. Uh, David's phrase here, a body you have prepared for me, again comes from this Greek translation, the Septuagint. And the, that translation generalizes. It takes the idea of a servant whose ear has been pierced and who now is a willing servant and extends it out to the whole body. Thank you, Jackson. Here I am. I have come to do your will, O God. So like our Lord Jesus We bring our bodies to him, and in effect, we say, pierce my ear. I want to be, I love you, because you love me. And I want to serve you for the rest of my life. Jesus said, this is my body, which is given to you. Now give me your body for my purposes. Let's take it together. Thank you for that great giving, Lord, that is behind all of our giving. We give because you first loved us. Thank you. Amen. Now, as the men distribute the second element, um, I was thinking this last week about a time when our children were very, very small. And uh, as parents, we wanted to affirm them in our love. Uh, as much as possible, and we had all kinds of little games we used to play with them. One of them was we'd stretch our arms out as far as we could stretch them, and we would say, you want to know how much I love you? I love you this much. And I was thinking this week about the cross, and that's exactly what our Lord did. He stretched His arms out on that cross, and He said, you want to know how much I love you? I love you this much. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting love. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The only reasonable response for us is to say, I love you too. Years ago, an angel appeared to a little teenage girl in Palestine, and told her that God wanted to use her body to bring the Savior into the world. It wasn't easy for Mary to present her body. It meant misunderstanding, harsh ridicule, humiliation, and deep sorrow. As the angel put it, a sword will pierce your heart. Yet she replied, Here's my body available to do your will. Behold the bond slave of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. Perhaps in the taking of this element you will say along with Mary, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, here I am, to do your will. Who knows what good God may make of it. Let's take the cup together. Thank you, Lord, again, for your word to bring such comfort, comfort to us that reminds us that our bodies are not meaningless, they're not purposeless, that they've been given to us for a reason granted for a time that we may serve you, and then throughout all eternity to serve you in redeemed bodies that are able to respond to the desires of the Spirit. And we give you our thanks and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: David, if you'd uh, hang here for just a minute. Uh, as David said, today is his 75th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, David has had a huge impact on many of our lives, mine mm. included, and many of us here. And David, I just want to thank you for many years ago presenting your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, letting him pierce your ear, and be, being his servant for these many years uh, in many contexts, including 18 years as our senior pastor here at Cole. And uh, you've ministered to churches all over Idaho and really all over the world through your teaching and through your shepherding and through your writing, your books that have gone all over, all over the world. So I just, on behalf of Cole, want to say thank you. Oh, and bless I'd your Acknowledge heart. that. And I wonder yeah. if we could stand and just sing him happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> could we do that? Uh, thank you. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> happy birthday to you.
1: Happy birthday, dear
2: David. Happy birthday.
1: You. Love you. Love you too. Thank you, (laughs) buddy. Why don't we let that be our
0: closing hymn? (laughs)